Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, this is the second part of a two-parter on André Le Nôtre, who is France's famous gardener. We discussed in the first episode how that term doesn't really encompass all that he was or did, uh, but it is usually how he is defined historically. And on the last episode, we talked about André Le Nôtre's early life and how, with one high-profile project, he went from being a well-respected royal gardener and controller to being tapped by King Louis XIV for a project that was going to be epic in scale. And so here in part two, we're going to pick up with that project, how it played out, and then take you right on through the end of Le Nôtre's life and also how his work is seen today. You're not going to be completely lost if you pick things up here and you didn't listen to part one, but you're going to miss out on a really juicy story about how that big project that kind of made him famous uh, contributed to a member of the royal court being imprisoned for life, uh, not because Andre <laughs> designed it, but because it was lavish and beautiful. Uh, it's a juicy story. Go back and listen. Uh, so we are going to pick up right where we left off. So we ended the last episode with the king tasking André Lenotre with designing the Gardens of Versailles. When Louis XIV decided that he wanted to renovate the chateau and have landscaped grounds there, it was initially because he just loved the hunting lodge and he liked life in the country. He preferred it to Paris, where he was always being watched, and it gave him a getaway where he could arrange romantic liaisons. But by the mid-1670s, the king had decided to move the royal court from Paris to the redesigned Versailles. And while André Le Nôtre had been a royal gardener, as we said, before this project, heading up the garden plans of Versailles was very different because it was a true collaboration with the monarch. And Louis XIV had opinions about plants and gardens, as he was an avid gardener himself. But Le Nôtre was really the perfect creative match for the king. Where Louis could be mercurial and impulsive, Le Nôtre was relaxed and steadfast, and the two very different personalities managed to achieve a balanced sort of harmony as they plotted out and executed this massive project. It really helped that Le Nôtre was truly a royalist, and he was very devoted to Louis XIV. And the young king, in turn, who was in his 20s at this point, seemed to really enjoy the company of the older Le Nôtre, who did not seem to be scheming in his relationship with the monarch in any way. Le Nôtre also had to work with Lebrun and Laveau as he had at Volvecomte, and he had to juggle the personalities of these two men plus the king throughout the project. Laveau died in 1670, and his assistant, Francois Dorbet, finished the work. Later work on both the chateau and the gardens was commissioned by Jules Hardouin Mansart. Le Nôtre didn't seem to let constantly changing targets bother or unsettle him, and through it all, he wasn't just working with the king and his design collaborators. He was managing thousands of people in order to fulfill the desires of the crown at a magnitude that was beyond anything any of them had ever worked on before. So if you visit Versailles today, which we have been lucky enough to do, it is all paved and landscaped and manicured. It is absolutely breathtaking. But that location, as has come up on the show before, was a hunting lodge before Louis XIV decided to redo it and eventually make it into a palace. And it was out in the country. So what Le Nôtre was faced with was turning a whole lot of swampy, muddy ground into something worthy of French royalty. No small task. 
The diarist Louis de Rouvre, the Duc de Saint-Simon, wrote of the Versailles site that it was, quote, the saddest and most barren of places with no view, no wood, no water, and no earth, for it is all shifting sand and marsh, and the air consequently is bad. And apart from that, it was a lot of land like that. By the time Louis XIV finished acquiring parcels of adjacent land to expand the existing site, there was about 15,000 acres or 6,000 hectares. Lenotre spent 30 years working on Versailles, turning it from that marshy expanse to a place of just unparalleled splendor. I feel compelled to point out that a lot of people will say Saint-Simon in his <laughs> writing was a little bit um, of a drama llama and could exaggerate things. So it may or may not have been quite as bad as he described it, but everyone agreed pretty universally that it was a weird place for the king to want to put a lot of effort in. And that splendor that was created came at a very significant cost partially because of that weird land, and that cost was both in money and in men. It was estimated that the cost of just leveling and excavating the land and preparing the clay basins for water tallied up to more than 6 million livres. And a lot of men also died over the course of construction, with the numbers of people injured on the job totaling in the thousands. The primary causes for these deaths and injuries were landslips while digging out the various water features, and malaria, because that marshy ground is a perfect place for mosquitoes to be very, very happy. A similar human cost had taken place during the construction at Vaux-le-Vicomte, where serious injuries and mortalities were so common that a new hospital had to be established to handle them all. I read one story, but I didn't read any verification on it because I didn't particularly chase after it, that at Versailles, they were basically letting people kind of like fall. They would move the bodies, but they wouldn't permanently move them off the site until nighttime because they didn't want to like be carting dead bodies through the workers and demoralize them as they were digging. <laughs> Just terrible. There are a lot of discussions to be had about the moral implications of of spending so much money on something like this. Uh, we're not digging super deep into them, but I want to mention that like there is human cost when you are indulging in something at this level. And this work was all done by hand. It was largely staffed by soldiers who were doing this work in between military engagements. The initial plan for organizing all of this at Versailles was to lay the landscaping elements out along a long axis with cross axes creating partitions within that. And the symmetry there was used to great effect. There was a rudimentary version of the east to west axis already in place on the site when Lenotre arrived at Versailles. And he fortified and extended it, including adding the Grand Canal and creating what came to be known as the Grand Perspective. This east-west alignment of the whole thing ensured that the movement of the sun over the gardens and the property would make it the perfect place for the sun king because the sun rose on one side, crossed the long length of the property, and then had a, a beautiful sunset on the horizon on the other side. And looking out from the windows in the Hall of Mirrors offers a full view of the Grand Perspective, or in French, the Grand Perspective, leading the eye down the elongated Great Lawn as it meets a rounded fountain that sits between the lawn and the canal, and then extending the eye line down the canal, again, sort of to infinity. Uh, having seen that perspective, it is a little bit like your brain can't process how far it goes on. 
Le Notre also added a north-south access, which eventually included a number of prominent spaces in the design, including the Water Walk, the Neptune Fountain, and the Orangerie. There are very few surviving documents that feature Le Notre's garden designs, and most of those are sort of doodly rough sketches that suggest that he was working out concepts with pen and paper. We also don't have any clear notes on how he worked or executed his design. So how things transitioned from design idea to finished formal garden have to be pieced together through the writings of other people. And even then, there are very few specifics to Le Notre, although the best practices written out by men such as Desalier d'Argenville in his early 18th century book La Théorie et la Pratique du Jardinage are undoubtedly heavily influenced by Lenotre's work. There are uh, some people that will say that we don't have surviving designs of Lenotre because he didn't actually ever write out any designs. That seems unlikely. I think most historians will say that that doesn't really make any sense. Um, because the stuff he was doing was so careful and mathematical that even if he were a genius that could see it that way, you would have needed to have plans to direct the actual construction and layout and uh, excavation that had to happen. And the team that Louis XIV had assembled was quickly tasked with things like creating that orangerie for the orange trees that he had taken from Vaux-le-Vicomte and creating a menagerie space for what some would consider the first zoo in the Western world. Uh, For anybody that has maybe seen pictures of Versailles and doesn't know, there's a famous section that you often see because it's very striking, which has these little parterres of low boxwood hedges that are cut into curly Q shapes. That is the orangerie. If you look closely, there are pathways through it, and there's a circular center part to it. And orange trees are arranged in planters all around those walkways. So that is that is what we're talking about when we say the orangerie. Yeah, it, it, let them take the orange trees inside when the weather was not going to be conducive to their being there. They do not love a winter. They no. <laughs> and a, a French winter is too cold for uh, citrus normally. Yeah, I I don't know why it wasn't until we were in Paris and someone explained that to me that I was like, oh, right, of course, obviously. (laughs) In just a moment, we will talk about how Lenotre tackled this immense task to turn Swamp into a royal garden, but we'll pause first for a quick sponsor break. Le Notre, as we said before, set to partition the land out in that axis-based grid for the various elements of design that he wanted to include. Low parterres were designed to sit nearest the chateau on three sides so that the open sight lines of that lower level could be maintained, the north parterre, the south parterre, and the water parterre. Uh, As the gardens extended farther back from the chateau, they were then laden with all manner of surprises. The paths that cross the Grand Perspective lead visitors into the groves of Versailles, each of which is unique. Lenotre created 15 of them initially. Some were modified and others were added by later designers. These groves featured fountains and sculptures that were designed by Lebrun, each having its own identity. These groves included the Ancient Gallery, that was an outdoor exhibition of sculptures, the Grove of Domes, which includes a hexagonal pool in the center, the Grove of Three Fountains, which is credited as being the king's idea, and a marsh grove, which featured plants that were sculpted out of metal all around its central fountain. 
There was also a ballroom grove, which was a tiered amphitheater, which was the last grove that Lenotra created that was completed in 1685. Uh, having walked around some of these wonderful, surprising little spaces in Versailles, they're delightful. And you wonder how, like, these very complicated structures are existing, seemingly tucked into, like, little private areas. Yeah. But they are so... Um, it's not like you find a little open space with benches. I mean, they're like little rooms. They're not little either. <laughs> but compared to the rest of the grounds that you're on, they're like their own... It's like walking into, like, themed rooms in a really, like, um, creatively designed house or something. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. In 1665, Lenotra started plans for a labyrinth for one of the groves at Versailles. That was a feature that was popular on French estates at the time. That labyrinth wasn't completed until the mid-1670s, in part because the king, on the advice of writer Charles Perrault, asked for a redesign in 1669. Perrault was the author credited with the first published Mother Goose stories that have become such classics, including Cinderella, Little Red Riding Hood, and Sleeping Beauty. Lenotre redrafted the labyrinth to include several dozen fountains to represent the story of Aesop's fables. This included carefully designed statuary and a whole lot of plumbing. The labyrinth and several other groves were later replaced in a redesign by Jules Hardouin-Mansart when he was tasked with updating the grounds. Yeah, the labyrinth was was taken away, which is a pity. Um as with his other work that we've talked about, Le Notre once again used visual trickery and interest points all over Versailles. He made rectangles that would look like squares from certain angles, or he created parterres of swirled boxwoods, kind of like we talked about in the Orangerie, that were trained and cut into shapes that resembled the scrolls that were found on carpets, tapestries, and clothing embellishments. While Versailles was a career-defining accomplishment, Lenotra went on to do a whole lot of other work after it was finished. As for Louis XIV, he continued to make changes to the ground as his desires and whims shifted right up until his death. But the gardens of Versailles today are still very much governed by the designs that were developed and executed by Lenotra. They didn't, of course, stay that way from his time up until now. Uh, they have, at various points, been replaced, like we said, fallen into disrepair, etc. But several of the groves and other features have been restored in recent years to how they looked in Le Notre's time. But there is an interesting difference. Uh, in his book, The Sun King's Garden, author Ian Thompson, who is a PhD in landscape architecture, notes a key difference between the restored Versailles gardens of today versus what they looked like when Le Notre was in charge. Based on 18th century engravings of the space, it appears that things were a lot more angular and sharply maintained in the 18th century, where, quote, the hedges are so immaculately clipped that they look like walls. All of the fountains involved in Versailles created a need for a lot of water, and that was a need that was just impossible to meet. Fountains would have to be turned on as the king approached and then turn off once he was a distance away. A monstrous 221-pump device with 20 massive water wheels was developed in the 1680s. That was called the Machine de Marly, and it was meant to bring water in from the Seine, but it created way more problems than it was worth, and it also never really fulfilled its mission of bringing in enough water to keep more than 2,000 fountains going at Versailles. Yeah, that is another thing that I would love to make into an episode of its own at some point in time, because... Just the 
drawings of it are yeah. brain-breaking. And there is a lot of tragedy associated with it as well. When I got to this, as I was reading through this this earlier this morning, I was like, I want to know more about this machine. Yeah, it's... um. It's a thing. <laughs> and I, I do want to talk about it at some point in the future. Uh, taking on a project like Versailles surely occupied a great deal of André Le Nôtre's time. But he still did not work exclusively at the New Palace location, and he continued to accept other contracts. This was a very shrewd thing to do because his close association with the king and the universal recognition of the genius of the Vaux-le-Vicomte gardens meant that he was in very high demand among the nobility of France and he could command very lucrative commissions. Lenotre started another challenging project at just about the same time that he started work on Versailles. That was the gardens of the Prince of Condé, Louis II de Bourbon. Those gardens at the Chateau de Chantilly posed their own unique problems, most notably the fact that while Condé wanted the symmetrical, manicured look that Le Nôtre was becoming famous for, the chateau itself had a really strangely shaped asymmetrical moat that did not naturally lend itself to Le Nôtre's design aesthetic. To add to that dilemma, the Prince of Condé was not willing to knock down any of the old buildings on the property in service to this new design layout. Still, Le Nôtre took the job, and he turned his skill at making order out of chaos to it. He couldn't make the chateau uh, a central point on an axis that bisected the land, as was normally what he would do, because the house was also offset from the center of the property, and the house itself was not symmetrical. (laughs) It was kind of like, here are a bunch of ingredients that do not make any sense for a cake. Please make a cake out of them. And he was like, okay. Uh, So the main access avenue of the design actually runs parallel to the front of the chateau. So for a visitor that's approaching the main gate, which sits at the center of the layout, the chateau is in the distance and to the left. And the Grand Gardens, which are situated beyond the chateau, can't really be seen until you've reached the Grand Terrace due to the main entry path being a slight uphill incline. And then once a visitor reaches the central terrace, the large water feature and Grand Gardens emerge. It's kind of like a visual surprise as you get to that apex and they stretch out across the property. And for all the challenges that Lenotre faced at Chantilly, the property had one resource that made the engineering aspect of it easier than other projects. It had a close proximity to the River Nonette, which was a tributary of the Oise, meaning that water was always plentiful. So despite the challenges, Lenotre, who worked on the gardens there for two decades, spoke of it late in his life as an example of a great French formal garden. In 1664, the king and Colbert agreed that Le Nôtre should redesign the Tuileries gardens. And he changed them from the designs that had been in place since Catherine de' Medici had commissioned the gardens to the popular formal French garden of which he was the master. He expanded the garden by lengthening its access to the west, creating the line of what would eventually evolve to the Champs-Élysées. This is, uh, if you are in Tuileries today, there are some modern additions, like there are modern play areas and cafes, but the layout is still exactly what Le Nôtre set up. In 1670, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, who's the same person who had schemed to have Nicolas Fouquet arrested, hired Le Nôtre to design a park to surround his new home at Chateau de Sceaux, several miles outside of Paris. It was no accident that he had waited nine years after the Volvacomp scandal to have his own chateau made over, 
uh, Colbert, like a lot of people in the nobility, didn't want to similarly be associated with this conspicuous opulence or to look suspicious with their spending in the wake of Fouquet's fall from grace. Yeah, he basically just, like, waited it out until he felt like it was safe because he also wanted a beautiful chateau with grounds designed by Le Nôtre. And even though he hired Le Nôtre, Colbert was still very, very careful not to go too far with his chateau's grounds. Uh, to us, it would seem like extremely extravagant and lavish, but at the time, he had dialed it back. Uh, Le Nôtre did design a spectacular 18-basin cascade feature for So, as well as the most powerful fountain effect known to France at the time. That shot water 25 feet into the air. That's a little less than 8 meters. Le Nôtre's work in redefining the Tuileries and sculpting the grounds of Versailles made him even more of a darling with the upper class, and that extended outside of France. Everyone wanted him to turn his skill at creating grand vistas to their own properties. While work at Versailles was ongoing, he traveled outside of France and lent his expertise and artistry to other landscapes. He traveled to London in the early 1660s at the behest of Charles II to design Greenwich Park. And he took on projects in Italy and Germany as well as all over France. Yeah, he was so busy. It's one of those things where, (laughs) I mean, we work on lots of different stuff here, but I can't imagine the scale of things he was working on and he would just be juggling like tons of these contracts at a time. Uh, Next up, we are going to cover the last segment of Le Nôtre's life and his enduring influence, but we're going to take a quick sponsor break before we do that. In 1675, King Louis XIV made André Le Nôtre a noble. And when the king asked the master gardener what he would like to have included on his coat of arms, Le Nôtre replied that he wanted three snails, a head of cabbage, and a spade to represent the thing that had brought him such favor from the king. I find this so charming. (laughs) It is. And you can see um, images of what are probably the coat of arms designed for him. There's some question marks about whether those are the actual ones or uh, something that someone else just drew up based on this story. But they are very, very charming, and there are three snails. Uh, In lieu of a a spade directly represented, there's like a chevron that kind of is intended to represent the tip of a a pointed spade. But there is a head of cabbage at the top and three snails spaced out beautifully on the the rest of the, the coat. In 1679, Le Nôtre traveled to Italy, where he spent the majority of the year visiting gardens and important people there. He made an interesting stop along the way, diverting his trip to Pignerol in northwestern Italy. This was the prison where his former employer, Nicolas Fouquet, had been sent to live out his life under lock and key. So even though he had fallen from his position within the French court, it seems that Le Nôtre had maintained at least some relationship with Fouquet. Yeah, this also sort of upholds that ongoing image that's always portrayed of Lenotra as just being an incredibly nice person. Like, even though everyone else kind of turned their back on Fouquet, he didn't think of him as somebody that he couldn't maintain a relationship with, even though were it anybody else who made a visit like that, it probably would have made Louis XIV really, really angry. But Lenotra was, again, so beloved that he was uh, allowed a little more leeway, probably. 
uh, when Lenotra returned from Italy, he went right back to work at Versailles, and he started construction of that ballroom grove that we mentioned uh, in 1680, and it was completed, as we said, in 1685. And he continued to work on fine-tuning the grounds with the king for eight more years before he decided to retire in 1693 at the age of 80. Lenotra died on September 15th of 1700 at the age of 87, He had managed through what the diarist, the Duc de Saint-Simon, called his, quote, charming simplicity and truthfulness to avoid any of the kinds of personal scandals or court intrigues that were common. He had stayed out of that in his lifetime. Lenotre stands as a unique figure in the world of Louis XIV and that he didn't have any interest in taking others down to try to improve his own footing, He was an uncommonly good collaborator and happy to share credit, also willing to compromise and hardworking. Uh, Yeah, we we mentioned earlier that Mansart was called in to redo some of the grounds at Versailles, and that's another one that gets told two different ways. Some people will say that Le Notre and Mansart had a sort of rivalry and that that was the one person that Le Notre was ever heard to sort of criticize. But then there are other suggestions that indicate he may have even been the person that recommended that Mansart be the person that Louis XIV hired for those next rounds of of redesigns. So it's a little unclear, but he didn't seem to ever get involved in like the gossip or mess of of all of <laughs> Those things. Uh, 300 years after André Le Notre's death in the year 2000, a group of experts in French history met to compare notes on their knowledge of the landscape artist who had so significantly shaped the French garden aesthetic. And they published a French-language book about the man and his work titled Le Notre, un inconnu illustre, which translates to an illustrious stranger. One of the things that uh, remains certainly to me, and I would think to others, completely sort of brain-bending, is that André Lenotre was always designing with the thought of what the gardens would look like from above, primarily from terraces or windows of the chateaus that his designs surrounded. He even at one point kind of commented about making parterres that were beautiful when seen from the windows, that it was kind of sad that the only people that would ever really see what he was doing were like the nannies because the top floors tended to be where the children's rooms were. Um, But even today, what's really cool is that when you see full aerial views of his work, It is breathtaking. And he was drafting these gardens more than 100 years before the first hot air balloon was even invented. So he didn't really have a sense that we would ever get these beautiful views. So while some higher ground vantage points during his lifetime offered a sense of what he had accomplished, kind of like the Nazca lines, the true extent of his achievement, I think, couldn't be seen until much later when we had the technology to fly. It's also interesting to consider that while the style of landscape that Lenotre became famous for is considered very much to be a matter of taming nature and making things look precisely designed and curated, he always started by looking at the land and seeing what it offered. He wasn't so much taming nature as figuring out how to work with it, challenges and all, and coming out with something that looked almost unreal in its exacting geometric layouts. And that's something I I feel like we should say that all landscape architects are taught to do. But I think because when you look at Lenotre's work, it doesn't, it looks a little removed from nature because it is so pristine and manicured. But really he was, he was doing exactly what you're supposed to do, which is looking at like different elevations of any given property and figuring out how he could use those to cut out terraces in the right places and develop something that was not necessarily going to look natural, but worked with some of the natural topography he was given. 
And we have mentioned numerous cases where the gardens and landscapes designed by Le Notre can still be seen today. And while some have been fairly consistently maintained, others have gone through cycles where they have fallen into disrepair or been allowed to grow over and have subsequently been restored and revitalized. And the bones that he laid out initially for those, those strong axes of paths and canals and roadways around which his symmetrical geometric design spread out, are readily apparent when you look at those gardens today. His work continues to influence creators today, and you've undoubtedly seen places shaped by Lenotre's ingenuity in manipulating space to try to create impactful illusions. When Pierre-Charles L'Enfant worked on the landscape design for the U.S. Capitol, he turned to Versailles for inspiration. And when architect Peter Walker designed the ultramodern square-shaped fountains at the Ground Zero Memorial in New York City, he referred to Lenotre's use of space to guide him. In 2015, uh, Alan Rickman, may he rest in peace, directed a film titled A Little Chaos, which is a fictionalized account of Lenotre's life. It is very fun, but I want to make clear to anybody that goes to it looking for an interesting look at Lenotre that it is very fictionalized. It revolves the story around an assistant that Lenotre never had and a resulting romance between Lenotre and this made-up woman. Uh, we don't know all that many details of Lenotre's personal life. Uh, that is why that that French book was titled An Illustrious Stranger. There are a lot of question marks about, about his day-to-day life, but it seemed more because he was kind of humble and didn't think he needed to record his everything. There is nothing to ever indicate that he had any kind of affair. <laughs> so that is very much uh, uh, speculative and uh, fiction. But also very fun, and you get to see lots of pretty things. Who I literally could watch just, like, flyovers of his gardens for hours and did while working on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those things where I'd be like, ooh, I just want to go look at Vaux Vicomte. And then, like, two hours later, I'd be like, whoops, maybe let's look at Versailles. And then three hours later, whoops, whoops, I lost half a day. Clearly, I love André Lenotre, and I I understand why France loves André Lenotre. There were also, in 2013, a lot of really fantastic uh, exhibits and retrospectives of his work all over France, and a lot of write-ups about him all over the world, uh, since that was the the 400th anniversary of his birth. It's kind of weird, because we keep talking about him in terms of, like, 300 years since and 400 years since, but it was because... He lived almost 90 years, and he worked for 60 of those really hard. <laughs> so that is why. I have, again, listener mail. I'm still working through holiday stuff. But uh, this first one is very, very germane to the topic at hand. It is from our listener, Amy, who went to Paris with us. Uh, she writes, Dear Holly and Tracy, I wanted to share my Christmas card with you both because it is primarily photos of the trip to Paris. I'm so happy that I was able to take this amazing trip. Thank you for the podcast and for being so wonderful and kind. Also, thank you, Holly, for taking the photo on the bottom right of me in the Versailles Gardens. I hope to see you again in 2020. Uh, yeah, Amy was with us and we were there at Versailles that day and she had wandered off by herself and Versailles, as we keep saying, is huge. And so I looked over at one point... And I just saw her walking around one of the circular water features, and she was the only person visible Mm. for, like, a huge expanse. And there were beautiful statues around her. So I just took a picture, and then later I told her that I had it, and I texted it to her, and now it's on her Christmas card. Uh, She was an absolute delight and went out to eat with me one night, and we had so much fun with everybody that was on that trip. I think about it daily. That was one of the uh, best nine days of my life. Uh, (laughs) So thank you, Amy, and thank you for coming on that trip. And we hope we see you again this year. 
I have one more card to read. This one is from our listener, Nicole, who writes, uh, Dear Tracy and Holly, I have listened to the podcast for a few years now. It is excellent. Thank you for all that you do. I've learned so much, and I always look forward to learning more when I see the new episodes drop. I wanted to send this particular card for a couple of reasons. First, Edward Gorey. It is a beautiful Edward Gorey Christmas card. Uh, second, I got it at the Seattle Art Museum when I went to see the Flesh and Blood exhibit, which included Artemisia Gentileschi's Judas Slaying Holofernes, and I had not known anything about her or her work prior to your podcast episode. It was amazing to be able to see the actual painting and connect it to what I'd learned. That is one of my favorite things about researching this show is then getting to go experience art with a lot more knowledge about it. So I'm glad that she had the same experience. Uh, there's one last bit I'd like to share as well. Over the summer, I misheard part of the Packard versus Packard episode. The actual sentence in the show was, Theophilus Packard had his wife institutionalized. But what I heard was, the awfulest Packard. <laughs> Which I think somebody could make that case. Uh, she, had, she said, I had quite a laugh. I hope you do too. Wishing you both a lovely holiday season and all the best in the new year. Nicole. Nicole, thank you so much. That is so sweet. I'm so glad that... Uh, that art came alive for you in a new way and also <laughs> that Theophilus sounded like the awfulest because <laughs> I think that's a valid interpretation. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us everywhere on social media as Missed in History. And you can subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever it is you listen. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. <laughs> 